Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on wherever you are joining us from. Thank you very much for joining this virtual event live today. And thank you also to those of you who, who will be listening to the recording later on. My name is Charlotte Hebebrand. I'm the Director of Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI. And it's my pleasure to moderate today's uh, policy seminar. We're delighted to have with us Uma Lele, um, one of the authors of the recently published book, Food for All and a set of very distinguished discussants. Um, I noticed that the write-up for this book uh, indicates that it provides a fresh perspective and innovative ideas on one of the most significant challenges faced by humanity in a time of climate change and health emergencies. And obviously today we can add another emergency to that list. Um, we are now again in a situation of war and uh, a, a security crisis, which will have um, some implications in particular also for low and middle income countries. Um, we'll be keen to hear from all of you to participate in our Q&A session that will follow the panel discussion. Please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. I'm now uh, delighted to pass the floor to Johan Swinnen, um, who serves as the Global Director of the Systems Transformation Science Group within the 1CGIR, and of course also as the Director General of IFPRI. Over to you, Jo. Thank you very much, Charlotte, and <clears throat> good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, it's a, a great pleasure. It's also a great honor <clears throat> to introduce this session here today. Um, Umalele and I have a few things in common. So we both have PhDs uh, from Cornell, from the same department there. We, I was president of the International Association of Agricultural Economists. She is the current president. Um, <clears throat> but Uma, we have also, there's a lot of differences. Uh, uh, Uma is the first female uh, president of the association, which is, of course, long overdue. And I was not the first male president, as, as you can imagine. Um, <clears throat> Uma has dedicated her life uh, to the issues of development, of growth, of poverty reduction, of hunger reduction. As you can, if you look at her bio on her website, it's very well documented there. It's, it's extremely impressive. I would like to point out just two uh, points on this very impressive bio, and that is that she herself has uh, initiated two very important uh, awards in her own name, both at the American, uh, which which used to be called the American Association of Agricultural Economists, uh, and uh, at the International As Association of Agricultural Economists, to stimulate young and female students in their professional career and their development with her own uh, contributions of that and very few of us of her, of her peers have done similar things so i think it's a really uh, it's just an illustration i think of her contributions uh, to the world the as charlotte already indicated the book could not and the, the issue and the discussion today could not have been more timely we are yet again in another food crisis in the world. It's, it's more than a food crisis, obviously. It's, a, it's a really a crisis of humanity, I think, which is currently going on. But of course, it has global implications in terms of the food security in the world. And so over the last 15 years, really, since 2007, we have gone from, almost from one crisis to the next, I would say. And now with climate change clearly affecting our uh, world, our lives, 
I mean, these things are likely to uh, stay with us for a long time. UMA has worked on so many different issues uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and clearly has contributed to that, but also our views because of our experience, I think are extremely important. We are today in a very different world than we were 60 years ago or something. 60 years ago, if you read the from the 1960s, the development economics textbook, etc., they talk a lot about, and I'm sure Uma knows this better than, than me, about how to solve hunger in Asia. Okay, so the concentrate the focus was very much on how can we ever feed Asia. And so today, obviously, that has changed. There has been tremendous growth in, in that part of the world. But at the same time, there's still a lot of hunger in that part of the world as well. At that time, most of the world in terms of governance was run by socialist uh, governments. There were a lot of the uh, world was run by communist governments in the, the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, China. Okay, But even beyond that, a lot of the philosophy of the, of the governance of the world, particularly in the, the poorest and the middle income countries, was based on socialism. That has changed tremendously with the liberalization waves of the 1980s and 1990s, both in terms of governance, but also in terms of economic models that we have been using. Uh, in China, the, 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 the major reform started in the rural areas in 1978. Uh, then later, India uh, had a major liberalization uh, change in 1992. And a lot of uh, countries in the world, also in Africa, for example, moved from a more uh, regulated system to a less regulated system. So all this has had tremendous implications for the lives of, of people and of the poor. And also very much, uh, there's been a major development in terms of the international uh, organizations which have contributed or tried to contribute to the reduction of poverty, to reduction of malnutrition. And that is very much the focus of our book. So I'm not going to dwell on that because I'm sure she has much more to say on it than, than I can do. I just want to end by saying, uh, it's also very timely what she contributes uh, for our own organization, our own uh, organization, IFPRI and the CGIR, which is currently going through a major transition. And I very much look forward to hear her views on this. She has a chapter in the book on this, which I really recommend everybody to read. And I'm happy to come back maybe at the end to, with some reflections on it, but I'm not going to uh, try to steal her words if you want. Back to you, Charlotte. Thank you so much, Yo. That's a great uh, uh, tribute to uh, Uma and also a nice way that you just summarized some of the key changes that we've seen since the 1960s. So it's a discussion we'll obviously be taking forward. You did neglect to say one other thing about Uma, um, which is uh, you were not the first male candidate to get a PhD at Cornell, but Uma was the first female candidate to accomplish that. <laughs> so I, I love that part of your bio, Uma. Um, over to you. Thank you very much for giving us an overview of this very important book. Thank you very much to IFPRI and the team and the panel too for organizing this um, session on our book. It's it's very timely and in an unfortunate way that I had not expected when the seminar was planned. There is an enormous toll of the Russia-Ukraine war that is taking place and I've just highlighted a few things. One is obviously a big toll on global food security, which is jeopardized. It's a tremendous humanitarian disaster uh, in recent history, the largest in Europe, 3 million migrants already that 
uh, when I was preparing this, probably many more, 10 million people on the move, food, fuel, fertilizer prices are all growing, uh, increasing. Global economic growth has uh, been reduced. And there is a concern that I have that rise of attention to European crises, which is justified, would also mean diverting attention from SDGs in, in poverty and hunger in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. This is against the background of huge international changes already, the rise of China, increase in the number of international actors, which has fragmented international assistance, international governance is already in big trouble, as we can see from the crisis that has taken place. So the, so, uh, the global food and nutrition challenge, which is identified in the book, which was completed prior to the European crisis had already said, said that business as usual is unlikely to read, uh, reach SDGs for food and hunger. Um, that's because the decline in global poverty and hunger had already slowed um, after 2015, even before the COVID crisis. And COVID has obviously compounded the problems, particularly for the poorest in the world. And uh, we already knew that the rapid reduction in poverty and hunger that had taken place was in China and Southeast Asia. South Asia, where hunger and poverty decline hasn't done as well. And climate change has compounded the problem. The migrant labor has been going back after COVID. So dependence of uh, populations on food and agriculture, if anything, has increased, which isn't what we had expected. We were expecting a structural transformation. Global child and poverty and hunger has also decline at a slow rate. And even more concerning is the rapid dietary transition in food consumption to mostly junk food, which is reducing the quality of food and contributing to obesity and number of diseases. So um, you have to change the slide, I'm afraid I can't, it's not moving for me. So what we can see is that uh, poverty and hunger are now world before the European crisis largely concentrated in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And if you look at the macro figures, it doesn't really uh, clarify the relationship between poverty and hunger. What that's always struck me, for instance, Sub-Saharan Africa has more poverty uh, than South Asia but South Asia has more hunger in percentage terms than in, uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And we need to understand this relationship at all levels. And despite all the work that people are doing, we don't simply understand the relationship. Next, please. One of the things that the book identifies is that there have been large number of international initiatives. And the book chapter, one of the chapters um, reviews all these international initiatives, large number of meetings, number of them achieve certain agreements. But if you look at it in terms of ultimate impact on increasing one of the big messages coming out of this book is increased investment. Uh, 
you see that there isn't much increased investment despite all these initiatives. Next, please. So what is needed to deal with the current challenge of uh, achieving SDG goals? And we have both on the supply side and demand side a lot to do. On the supply side, production and trade needs to be increased in a balanced, affordable and accessible way for people and getting away from the concentration on um, carbohydrates, which has been the main preoccupation after the Green Revolution. And to create, uh, to recognize that 3 billion people already lack income to deal with the problem of access to food. And on the demand side, then we need to create a lot more effective demand uh, by increasing employment and incomes, consumer education, low cost value chains, et cetera. So in investment in infrastructure, and most importantly, do no harm. I don't know whether the private sector can be convinced to deal with this challenge of do no harm, uh, because currently junk food is contributing a lot to problems of food insecurity. Next one, please. Uh, what is striking on the supply side is that there are huge differences in productivity growth. And I've shown these across Asian countries. And you can see that South Korea and China have done very well on productivity growth. And India that did quite well on green revolution, it's, it's fallen behind the uh, total factor productivity growth. And if we look at the regional differences, then Africa is well behind the rest of the world. And that is where poverty and hunger are much greater. So we need to focus also on increasing productivity and growth uh, in TFP. Uh, please change the next to the next slide. Um, what is striking about these majors that I just showed you is that TFP growth is not majoring loss in natural resources. And recent evidence shows that there is substantial loss in natural resources, which has implications for TFP growth, which we have not reflected in the numbers that I showed you. And this briefly describes what structural transformation is in which TFP growth is critical, also decline in share of agriculture in GDP and employment. And I'm showing that in countries that are lagging behind, 130 countries that we analyze, countries that are lagging in behind also are lagging in TFP growth and uh, most poverty is now concentrated in rural areas. What is striking, uh, and I refer to number of international initiatives, in the 19, there are two, two things being shown here. One is the change in the real prices, world food prices over time from the 1960s, and the other is the growth of uh, foreign assistance or investment in agriculture, IBRD lending as share of total. And you can see that IBRD lending and IDA lending had increased a lot in the 1970s when there was a big food and financial crisis. But if you look at it subsequently, although there have been all these consultations, there hasn't been really much change, uh, increase in investments in food and agriculture by the international community. This graph shows the differences in domestic savings and capital formation 
in different parts of the world. And again, what is striking is that China and Southeast Asia that have done well have some of the highest savings and investment rates in the world. And they've also invested a lot uh, in fixed capital in agriculture as well as in the total economy. Whereas other countries' saving rates are much lower, so they probably need more international assistance, but their own investments in savings and investment have not been as high as they are in Southeast Asia. So if we look at China and Southeast Asia, we find that capital requirements of rapid GDP growth and TFP growth are substantially larger, and that is an area in which I'm afraid economists haven't focused enough on. Next, please. This shows what's happened to ODA. It was 0.3% of uh, gross GNI of OECD countries, and it's gone up just a little bit to 0.32% in the last few years. But it's not a significant increase. And as I said earlier, there is a decline in the share of assistance going to food and agriculture over time. And no wonder that shows in low rates of productivity growth in different parts of the world. Next, next please. So uh, in the book, I uh, review the history of international organizations over time, how they have changed over time and an important role that the international community played in establishment of Bretton Woods institutions, FAO, CGIAR, which is the largest global network of agricultural research, World Food Program, which keeps on coming. It's the largest growth industry in the world where um, assistance for emergency has had to increase and it has increased more rapidly than increase in other uh, assistance except for IDA and then EFAD, which was established in 77. So I describe this in the book because we need to understand more how this international architecture works and what changes in it are ne necessary over time in order to deal with the current challenges. Next, please. What These are rather unique sets of data that we collected from the World Bank. And what it shows is the implementation record of different parts of the world. They're based on more than 2000 projects that the World Bank financed from 1972 to 2017. And there are some consistent patterns. For instance, Africa's performance, even when it improves uh, on project performance, it's still considerably lower than, than the other parts of the world. And what this shows us is that capacity in Africa to plan and implement their own projects hasn't increased despite the fact that there has been investment in their capacity. And so the next slide, which shows this, uh, shows these differences among countries. And you can see that Vietnam and China have done very well in implementation of World Bank funded projects. India that received the largest amount of foreign IDA contributions, for instance, there are, um, can't find the number for India. Uh, oh, 159 projects that the World Bank funded and its performance has been somewhat mixed. 
And as you go further down, you see that the performance of African countries on implementation has not been as good as it should be. So we really do need to invest a lot in planning and implementing capacity of countries that are lacking it and the ones that are lagging behind. So uh, what does transformation, structural transformation need? It needs substantial, substantially increased investment in R&D. It's one of the messages that comes out strongly from the book and several re different researchers that have done estimates suggest that maybe 14 billion dollars annually are needed, uh, incremental investment needed, which hasn't been taking place. And that include that does not include multi-sectoral investments in education, health, infrastructure, etc. Increase in domestic capacity, investment in value chains, um, a sound predictable policy framework in the context of very rapid uh, changes in the international environment, which requires domestic capacity and diversifying out of rice, wheat, maize preoccupation, which came about as a result of the green revolution to a much more diversified production base, which is environmentally sustainable and which also promotes um, environmental services. So these are some of the a list of things that need to happen in the international community if the food situation is going to improve and it's going to contribute to structural transformation. So that's the end of my presentation. Thank you very much for giving me a chance. And I thank the panel for uh, coming on board to speak to these issues. And thank you, Joe, again, for reorganizing this. Thank you very much, Umad. A really great overview of this uh, book, which I really think is sort of a tour de force and, and required reading, I think, for anybody who wants to understand how um, development uh, policies have been uh, led and implemented uh, really since the post-World War II period. So we now move on to um, our discussants. We have four very distinguished discussants with us. I will not be introducing them in, in a lot of detail, but please be sure to look at their bios, which are in, um, in, the, um, in the program. Our, our first discussant is, um, is, is David Bathrick, who's had a long uh, distinguished career uh, at USAID and also a number of other institutions after he left USAID. Um, he really is um, an expert on uh, agricultural and rural development um, and will speak to us today in response to the issues you've raised, Uma, about the need for overarching strategies to facilitate labor force transition from agriculture to other sectors. Over to you, David. Congratulations to Uma and our team for Food for All, a tour de force explanation of agriculture's 30-year transition from mainly a narrow focus on cereal crop productivity to today's poverty, food security, and nutrition challenges. My focus addresses the root causes of, again, mounting poverty that places many of the already vulnerable, over 500 million uh, farmers and much larger related workforce in the world's agrarian-based low and medium uh, income economies in a far graver uh, situation. 
For too long, poverty has become a subject treated uh, in a distant, almost abstract-like fashion. UMA's exemplary service in providing and uh, probing structural transformation, uh, transformation provides a much needed analytical platform to seriously address poorly understood systemic dynamics that for too long have been insufficiently addressed by policymakers. My comments uh, are derived from my earlier similar effort over the same period with an informal senior group of academic and development professionals coming together around the uh, extensively vetted sustained poverty reduction via inclusive agriculture and rural development white paper herein termed IR white paper. For too long in most of the world's agrarian-based low and medium in, in economies, agriculture has been their largest economic sector. In terms of employment in USAID's Feed the Future countries, it covers 70% of the workforce, but always with the lowest incomes. For GDP, agriculture is composed largely by the large, lesser remunerative basic food grains and in trade informed mainly by, uh, formed by raw and bulk uh, products. Due to the long accumulation of unattended sector-based structural uh, problems identified in by Luma, globalizations and globalizations uncharted seed change of challenges and opportunities, agriculture becomes increasingly poor, poorly positioned to stimulate job and wage growth. In the IRD white paper, I employed the structural transformation matrix, arriving to similar conclusions of uh, UMAs. Further, due to agricultural's immenseness and limited intersectoral dynamics, over time, an anchor-like magnet formed to limit the national wage structure, contributing to intergenerational poverty and growing food insecurity, hunger, and societal desperation. To our shared conclusions, it is alarming that UMA's meticulous review of 126 seven countries during a 33-year period, she revealed, quote, the near absence of overarching strategies for the farm sector in most transforming countries to facilitate transition of massive labor forces from agriculture to other sectors, quote unquote. To stimulate substantive economic transformation, she posits the need for two major new era strategic themes. One, the low levels of industrialization-based job growth must be confronted. And two, for this to occur, quote unquote, greater burdens will fall on agriculture to best emphasize, emphasize the new era of vision, uh, UMA proclaims a new requirement to quote, transform economic development out of agriculture. From, from, uh, from my review of national accounts and intersectoral trends, I noted the minimal intersector shifts from cereal and food stocks to the more dynamic value-added subsectors. Yet uh, where there have been limited, albeit not yet enough intersectoral growth and transformation, it occurred from the linkages of agricultural sector products and support needs provided by the industrial and service sectors. 
Thus, for the advancements of UMA's essential big picture strategic challenge, the only approach to advance sustainable structural trans transformation is where agro, where agriculturally, agroecologically and economically feasible, uh, focus on assisting much larger numbers of small and medium scale producers to diversify their farm uh, enterprises from low value food crops to more profitable product islands uh, items, including uh, fruits and vegetables, fruit, forest and tree crops, livestock, aqu aquaculture, and so on. Two, the facilitating the, uh, the growth of complementary small and medium enterprises to engage in fresh and product process handling and manufacturing, thereby forming a growing agro-industrial subsector and service sectors uh, fo focused on agro-input supply, financing, marketing, transportation, etc. Further, Internally to this long-term national effort on systemic reform, a higher level intersectoral supportive policy, regulatory and enabling environment becomes essential. The suggested response to Ilma's tactical recommendations requires sustained attention to a much more holistic process, market-based support structure to stimulate major farm enterprise diversification. This process must be cast to respond to the pressing realities of increased risk factors and requirements to much higher levels of rural poverty, rural private and public investment. Going forward, and as described in the IR white paper, there is the unprecedented requirement to focus on cost-effective market responsive public and private structures and services for one, introducing and upgrading production and post-harvest technologies for more remunerative crops and product lines, two, expanding access of small-scale small farms and, and support firms for product processing, finance, marketing, and management services. And three, addressing a, the a multiplicity of support infrastructure needs. However, placed in the context of over three decades of collapsed donor fund uh, support by donors to this historic economic development 101 sector, and actually disproportionately higher from USAID and countries themselves, serious sector re-engineering becomes further challenged. Radically altered approaches from the prevailing business as usual modus operandi must be seriously considered and some are offered in the IR white paper. For example, as Uma astutely noted, the earlier golden era of support to agriculture and rural development was led by a highly successful USAID program that focused on long-term institution building and, and capacity development services supported by a large contingent of US land grant universities. If desired copies of the IRED white paper are available at davidbathrick at gmail.com. In our increasingly interconnected world, the consequences of rural-based poverty dynamics causes more diverse and severe global distress. 
In the US, there, these also impact our natural security and domestic uh, pol political agenda. In its most perverse form, it, for it drives the record levels of Southern illegal uh, migration northward uh, to the US and in Africa and in the Middle East into Europe. Again, congratulations, Uma and your colleagues. I hope my com uh, comments prove helpful. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to provide it. Thank you very much, David. Um, I, I think we can would be happy to circulate your uh, the the the, the uh, Gmail address that you just listed, so folks can get a copy of the the white paper. Um, you you've set uh, I, I, your remarks really sort of. Um, are a bit depressing, I would say, uh, in, in, in indicating that perhaps uh, some of the development strategies have, have not focused on the things that are really, really crucial. So I, I'm sure you're setting us up for a very good discussion on that. Um, let's now move on to our, our next discussant. Um, who will be looking at the again the issues raised by by Uma, but from a two lenses. One is from the African lens, and the other one from the gender lens. So that's a big uh, job, Nali Shabo. Um, we're we're glad you're with us. Uh, Nali Shabo Mimbello is the executive director at the Regional Network of Agricultural Policy Research Institute, uh, uh, the Secretariat there. So over to you, Nali Shabo. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, so let me also join David in um, thanking the organizers of this event um, and also congratulating uh, Uma and um, supporting authors um, for this really well-written book. Um, I found it to be quite long, <laughs> I must admit, uh, but it was yet comprehensive, well-researched, informative, uh, and still relevant um, in the current, uh, with a focus on international organizations, uh, support to agricultural transformation, global governance, uh, with highlights concerning key drivers for growth, nutrition security, as well as comparisons across regions. Um, and this includes, of course, the region that I come from, um, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. So we are told that the book is informed by what was pertaining during the period uh, pre-COVID-19. However, the contents of the book are still highly relevant during this period when we are all learning to live with the pa pandemic. The book also presents us with perspectives um, for moving forward, you know, some key recommendations on how we should move forward. Um, I also note specifically, uh, and I saw that in Uma's presentation, that Sub-Sahara, in comparison with other regions of the world, has performed less in terms of the effectiveness of project funding from international organizations. That despite these contributions, challenges in Africa are still noticed. And so one asks the question, why is this the case? Do we need to move the focus of the debate on food systems transformation in sub-Saharan Africa from what needs to happen and more to how to make what needs to happen happen, to make these systems more equitable, inclusive, and resilient? So um, some of you may recall um, that during the just-ended decade, despite what has been said, 
before COVID-19 that some African countries were said to be growing much faster. So some African countries growing much faster than some developed nations. That was the narrative out there. Progress was also noticed in food and nutrition security. And I saw that in the presentation in poverty reduction and also in terms of reduction in hunger. So if there are any lessons to be learned from the few fast growing countries in Africa at the time, I suppose the questions we need to ask ourselves about that growth are the following. Do the drivers of growth in those countries, um, are they able to sustain momentum? Are those drivers able to sustain momentum in growth? Um, are the growth drivers in those African countries different from those that are witnessed in other regions such as Southeast Asia? So what are the drivers in Southeast Asia and what were the drivers in these African countries that seemed to be doing well? Um, and then what are the, those growth, are those growth drivers related to agriculture production productivity? Are they related to industry and manufacturing or were they related to services? So, so what are those escalators that enabled the growth in these countries? Uh, and what are the escalators in, in Southeast Asia, for instance? So what we are hearing is that uh, for Southeast Asia, um, the rapid expanding industry has played a major role as a growth driver. And therefore the role of producers, including smallholders and the private sector um, along key commodity value chains um, is, is important. And of course, an enabling environment um, by our public sector. So in sharing some quick perspectives uh, in relation to what the book says, and looking through the lens of the African continent and of course through uh, gender, um, I'll just highlight three broad points. Um, I'll talk about why women in Africa are still lagging behind in terms of their potential to contribute to agriculture as a result of their participation along key uh, value chains. So we hear about gender, we hear about women on a daily basis. So this is a song you hear all the time but we have to keep singing that song because we believe that women do have a potential to contribute to agro industry. So along the value, to work along the value chain. So I'm sure we all acknowledge that women have handicapped in many ways, despite the role that they play as major producers in Africa. Most are categorized as smallholder farmers or subsistence farmers. Women are also seen in other stages of the value chain. So not just producers being, being seen along the value chain. Despite the various gender policies um, in the continent, highlighting the significance of women as key actors in Africa's food system, they still remain constrained by issues such as lack of access to finance, land inputs, formal and non-formal training, etc. cetera. Uh, they also lack decision-making. Um, at household level, uh, especially because of cultural issues uh, and do not have access to extension services. Um, a significant gap also still exists in terms of the level of education uh, for females versus males, something that um, we continue to um, think about. Um, there is also a need for researchers, those of you who do research, for evaluators and those tasked with um, the development of sector strategies to ensure that uh, gender parity reflects in their products 
there is a need to have a deliberate effort to include um, a key, key thematic uh, gender as a key thematic area in research. Um, and to also um, ensure that uh, there is a deliberate effort to include women and the opportunities that they would um, uh, achieve uh, under agro-industrialization. So in terms of why smallholder agriculture um, is not developed um, as a means to support industrialization in sub-Sahara, why is smallholder agriculture not developed as a means for supporting industrialization in sub-Saharan Africa? So a few points here, agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa has always been taken as a means of subsistence. Uh, looking at agriculture as a business for smallholder um, agriculture is only just picking up momentum. Uh, and I know that all of us know that there's a huge conversation around agriculture as a business in Africa now. So that is a recent narrative. Otherwise, it has always been seen as a means of subsistence and a development um, initiative. Uh, in terms of public investment, um, the priorities under public investment do not focus enough on key drivers of growth uh, and also nutrition in Africa. Governments are not investing enough on research and development and extension services. Um, and you will note that those who are currently tracking uh, progress in the sector have noted that uh, only three countries in Africa in 2019 had invested at least 1% of agriculture GDP in research and development. Um, and so this is the minimum countries in Africa are being uh, encouraged to allocate at least 1% of agriculture GDP in research and development, and this is not happening. Uh, Non-state actors also need to organize themselves effectively. So you see these private sector associations, farmers associations, uh, those uh, uh, entities need to organize themselves um, effectively um, if they are to contribute to, to policy and also to um, uh, benefit from some of the um, enabling environment that their governments would um, put in place. Productivity, crops and livestock at all levels needs to also increase at a rate that can sustain industrialization. Yes, we want industrialization for Africa, but are we producing enough? to sustain? So that's a big question. Um, we are aware that most countries, for instance, in Southern Africa um, support monocropping. So that's an issue. Uh, and, and so you just have to look at some of the subsidies that uh, are taking place um, in Africa. So we need to invest more uh, in productivity um, in Africa. Uh, look at issues such as irrigation development, uh, market access as well and use of technology for agriculture and food systems transformation. These are lagging uh, behind in Africa. Um, prioritization of value chains is not enough. Uh, and I know that um, IFPRI is working with one of our centers, uh, the Bureau for Food and Agriculture Policy, to undertake further analysis beyond just prioritizing value chains as being good for, for, for Africa. But, what is it that actually needs to be done? What is the how? Um, how? How do you ensure that these selected value chains will contribute to, to, to GDP? So there's need to deep dive into some of those um, analyses. Um, 
In terms of what extent Africa has moved away from a focus on productivity growth um, in cereals um, to look at elements such as nutrition, um, it seems as though um, the basic premise in Africa at the moment is still uh, the need to meet food security first and then um, eventually look at issues such as uh, nutrition and health. So there is a need to build capacity for um, Africa to begin to ensure that you know we are looking beyond just food security and including um, issues such as nutrition and health and not simply paying lip service um, to, to this. Um, so in terms of increasing productivity, again, some of you might be aware that um, the African Union Commission is organizing um, the Africa Fertilizer and Soil Health Heads of State and Government Summit next year in June. And the idea is that um, following the 2006 Abuja Declaration on Fertilizer for a Green uh, Revolution in Africa, it appears as though not much progress has been made in achieving the um, commitments in that declaration. And so there will be a need to review um, what has transpired since 2006. So about 16 years ago, I think. Um, and so this is what this summit um, will be doing, um, undertaking a review of what has transpired since the, the declaration on increasing productivity through the use of fertilizer. However, there is now a focus on a, including um, a discussion on soil health. So that is why the, the, um, the summit will be called the um, Africa Fertilizer and Soil Health Summit. Uh, but I'm hearing from uh, Uma in her presentation that um, you know, while the focus is usually on uh, yield gain, uh, we need to move away, transition from yield gain to look at more sustainable ecosystems. So here's an opportunity for this book <laughs> to actually speak to those people that are um, organizing this summit to ensure that they do not miss out on some of the content of this book um, in terms of uh, what it speaks to um, around uh, productivity. Uh, and I also um, note that uh, Uma talked about the recent war in Ukraine. Um, that will also impact productivity because we know that uh, one of the products that comes out of Russia is fertilizer. Um, and then, of course, energy oil will be an issue. So um, we need to revisit uh, and re-strategize um, based on what is happening uh, with the war in um, in um, in Iraq. Okay, so I'm told that time is up. Um, I will stop here uh, and congratulate uh, Uma and her team again for um, this book, which I think is relevant, and um, hand over back to the moderator. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. Uh, thank you very much, Nali Shibo. I mean, again, you yourself have now presented a tour de force, I think, of, uh, of topics that, that require a lot of attention. And, you know, I, I picked up on, on what struck me as the most important ones, which is to, to keep singing the same song, right? We need to empower women to be more powerful actors uh, across, uh, across the value chain. Um, I think you stressed again the importance of devoting funding for ag uh, research and development. 
And then thank you also for bringing um, the, the, the plans um, for a new fertilizer summit, uh, certainly way overdue. And, and I think that will um, also come at a very good time, just as we're seeing a tremendous increase in, in fertilizer prices. And you mentioned the, the important role of Russia in, in fertilizer exports, uh, and as well as Belarus, uh, which has, mm -hmm. uh, is no longer exporting because of sanctions. So those are all very important issues to, to bring to the table. Um, we're about midway through the seminar. So let me remind all of you again to please uh, submit your questions. Um, we'll be getting to them uh, in, in just a little while. So you can submit your brief questions on ifbre.org. Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfBri on Twitter. Um, now I'm uh, very happy to uh, pass the floor to my colleague at IFPRI. Um, David Spielman is the Senior Research Fellow um, and the Program Leader uh, for Rwanda of IFPRI. He's joining us from Rwanda. I think he may still be on his cell phone because of some internet issues. So we hope we can, uh, we can hear you well, David. And you have also a big topic today. You're going to discuss with us today the, the changing global governance context for food security and the role of uh, CGIR. Over to you, David. Thank you very much, uh, Charlotte. I hope you can all hear me. I'm actually back on the, the Wi-Fi, so that's great. Um, so it's a pleasure to be a discussant uh, today for this impressive new book from Umalele and colleagues. I'm going to focus my remarks on chapter 10, which is about CGIR. So full disclosure, I worked with Uma at the World Bank on the World Bank's meta review of the CGIR at 31 uh, during its midlife crisis, which was published in 2003. And even today, I'm involved in several aspects of, of the current one CGR transition. So I'm not an outsider to the CGIR. I don't have that perspective to offer, but I was once called a troublemaker. So, so let me offer a few thought-provoking remarks. So first of all, in classic Uma style, this book is an intimidating read, <clears throat> but it's full of deep historical and contextual analysis combined with occasional zingers to keep us on our toes. You know, when Uma speaks and when she writes, I think we should all listen very carefully, especially about the CGIR. So I'll make three points about the book uh, and, its, and its reflections on CGIR. The first is about governance and public goods provision. So this book reminds us of the critical importance of global public goods provision, goods that neither private sector actors nor sovereign governments are incentivized to produce in the absence of, of some sort of global coordination mechanism. The book also reminds us that the provision of global public goods requires new and innovative approaches to that coordination to better governance. Clearly, the global community uh, is working to improve governance, you know, which this book defines as the outcome of how power and voice are exercised. You'll find that on page 288. In other words, we're in the midst of, especially in CGIR, a negotiation process, struggling between power and voice and how the architecture or the governance of the international agricultural research system will be organized and coordinated. Um, Oma also re reminds us that, that governance is cosmology, the scientific study of the origin, evolution, and structure of the universe of actors. I like that a lot. I think that's a great way to look at what we're doing. And it's not to be confused 
with governance as cosmetology, which is the art and science of beautification. So the one CGR transition has launched us headlong into the issue of CGR governance, an issue that Uma and her colleagues highlighted almost 20 years ago in that uh, meta review uh, at the World Bank. But I think we need to ask ourselves, in this new transition, has progress been made in addressing some of the CGR's root problems identified in that review and identified by subsequent work by, by people like Prabhu Pandali, uh, Chris Barrett, and many, many others, Alex McCullough, lots of names. The root problems include loss of strategic focus, tragedy of the commons, downstream drift, and lack of subsidiarity. So I'm especially concerned about these two last points, downstream drift and lack of subsidiarity. Remember, CGIR began its life in 1971 as a consultative group. Its membership included countries that depend on CGIR for R&D, for germplasm, for capacity development, and for policy guidance. Their voice and their agency matters deeply to our success in CGIR. We need to be asking ourselves whether their voice is in fact being carried into the current transition process. The next point I want to make relates to private sector engagement in CGIR and the one CGIR transition process. You know, there's actually an inherent tension in this book about what role the private sector can play vis-a-vis -vis CGIR. And me, I like inherent tensions. That, that makes a, for a good read. You know, the book points out that the private sector will never fill the gap in funding for global public goods provision, nor are they sufficiently incentivized to do so. See page 285. The book raises concerns about the influence on global governance from large corporations in the IT sector, the food and beverage industry, and the crop sciences. And those concerns range from their lack of coordination in their corporate social responsibility agendas to deliberate efforts to mute opposition to their products and practices. But the book also suggests that CGIR must capitalize on the private sector's technological advances, market expertise, and other assets that CGIR simply does not have. All this to say that there will have to be a very, very careful balancing act in CGIR as we transition to this new, new phase, this new life, and it has to be taken seriously. I would suggest a few principles to take us forward on this engagement strategy. First, the CGIR should be pro-competition, not pro-business when it comes to the private sector. That means encouraging and supporting competitive markets, not monopolies or, or privileged access by certain corporates over others. Second, CGIR should focus its energies on private sector development at the local or domestic level in the countries that we serve. And third, this balancing act will have to define no-go partners that can do irreparable harm to our reputation. My final point is about the food systems transformation lens that CGIR is now using uh, as part of its, uh, as part of its uh, transition. And it's alluded to, it's discussed actually in depth in, in Uma's uh, book. And, and the, the reason for using a food systems transformation lens is that it recognizes that the world is much more complicated than it, than it was when CGIR was created in 1971. 
So I'm actually a recent convert to this topic myself. You know, I, I work mainly on science and technology policy in agriculture, on agricultural R&D and productivity growth issues for much of my career to date. But here I am in Rwanda, where I'm actually witnessing a shifting policy focus from that, uh, that point made earlier about, you know, more food production, more food on the plate, more calories, to a much more nuanced discussion about healthier, more balanced diets, more nutrient-dense and animal source foods on the plate, and more attention to health, water, hygiene, and sanitation, alongside an urgent need to give attention to the conservation and maintenance of the fragile natural resource base in Rwanda in particular, but in all countries, really. It's incredible how hard it is to shift from being a food staple fundamentalist, as Prabhu Pingali once pointed out, to being a researcher and an advocate for better nutrition, wash, and healthy diets. I think some of my own colleagues would be very proud of me for making this shift. And Oma's book really, I think, brings this into, into stark relief for us, that we have to do it more and we have to do it faster. So can CGIR itself get out of its food staples mindset? You know, I'm asking myself that every day. The book points out that CGIR has a role to play in doing so, but we all wonder whether our focus on staple commodities may still be blinding us. For example, how do I explain to my colleagues who work on maize breeding or to the government of Rwanda that maize might not be the right crop for Rwanda's fragile hillsides? Or how do I explain to Africa Rice and, and Erie and, and again, my colleagues in the government of Rwanda that a rice-rice system, so two sequential crops of rice in Rwanda's fragile marshlands, might be an environmentally detrimental strategy. So, you know, those are the things that challenge us in one CGIR as we move towards this uh, transition. But let me end on an encouraging note. You know, CGIR has accomplished some great things since 1971. I'm proud to be part of it. Um, from its efforts to conserve, exchange, and use genetic resources for food and agriculture uh, to help farmers access better cultivars and more sustainable management practices in the fields. And I'm very proud of our efforts to bring gender to the forefront of global strategies for food systems transformation. Uh, when I joined IFPRI, when I joined CGIR, that topic was, was, was tokenized, it was marginalized, and only through the, the, the undying efforts of a, of a number of researchers that has now mushroomed, has now grown tremendously, have we mainstreamed gender research into everything we do. So this new book by Uma and colleagues gives, it comes at an opportune moment for CGIR. The book reminds us of the importance of global goods, global public goods and governance, the importance of genuine engagement with developing countries, and the need to view our challenges through a wider food systems lens. Most everyone, I think, is on board with these ideas, at least the people I work with, and it's now a question uh, uh, of how to implement, as the previous speaker pointed out. The book calls for greater multilateralism on the global stage and pluralism at the local stage. These are ideas that I hope we can all get behind in CGIR. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. I think those were some um, some very uh, astute remarks and you're picking up, I think, on indeed some of the the major discussions, I think, that that are taking place around the, the 1CG transition. 
um, highlighting, I think, the, the very important need of listening always to our developing country partners. Um, in fact, letting them be the demand drivers of what the One CG is all about. And, and I think asking some, some big questions about collaboration with the private sector, um, you know, I, I think you're basically saying we need to be careful, but we certainly need to engage because the size of the private sector, their, their investments, their technologies, it, it would be foolish not to engage with the private sector, and yet one needs to do it with, uh, with some caution. Um, so last, but, but certainly not least, um, let us now um, move to um, a final uh, discussant, and that is um, Shahid Rashid, who's uh, also a, a colleague of mine at IFPRI. He is serving as the director for South Asia, but also has a, a very long experience uh, in, in Africa. Um, Shahid, you're going to uh, address here, we're sort of continuing to discuss the CGIR, which forms such an important part of uh, Uma's book, and you're looking in particular at the evolution of how the CGIR has engaged with um, national agricultural uh, research systems. So over to you, Shahid. Thank you, Charlotte, and greetings to everyone. Let me join my other colleagues to congratulate Uma and her co-authors on publishing this very timely book with very rich content. I salute Emma for her intellectual curiosity to ask big development questions. And have, she has the persistence to get her research products out. I think the profession is grateful to you, Uma, and may God bless you with good health and courage to continue to serve. Also, thank you for inviting me to join the panel as agreed. I'll make just a couple of comments that, as Charlotte pointed out. Um, so this this again going to be about uh, the chapter on the CGIR, which is chapter 10 of the book. It's a very rich chapter with a wealth of historical details, as David pointed out. What I find more interesting, though, is Uma's attempt to put those historical details into very rich perspectives and op from operational point of view. And that comes from 50 years of engagement in the development field in various capacity. That is invaluable. As you pointed out during his opening remark, I think this chapter is a must read for all of my CGIAR colleagues, particularly at this time when we are talking about one CGIAR, we are talking about transition. So I don't think I can do justice to this chapter in five minutes. So I thought uh, the best thing for me would be to continue to interact with Uma to gain deeper, deeper understanding in the future. So that is on the table, Uma. So we'll continue that conversation. So for now, I'll make three broad set of comments, mostly in South Asian context. The first one is I'd like to reflect on the changing realities in which CGIAR operates. Remember when CGIR was founded in the 19, late 1960s actually, but formalized in 1971, the world, world order was very different. It was a different geopolitics. We lived in a bipolar global world order. It was bipolar world. It was essentially West versus Soviet Union. Uh, but at this time, two things were in favor of setting up CGIR system. Number one, the CGIR focus countries at that time were very, very poor. 
with very limited scientific capacity. So if you think about South Asia, the countries were leaving, there's a term called sheep to mouth. That is, they were heavily dependent on food aid. Let me cite an example from India. In the mid 1960s, India had two consecutive years of drought. The country needed 10 million tons of food to feed its population. But India did not have money to import food. So the country needed about 10 million tons of food. And if India had to spend all of its foreign currency reserve in the bank, Reserve Bank of India, they could get roughly about 60% of the food the country needed. So that was a dire situation at that point. Uh, and that had to change and oh, all political well, leadership in the region. Hello, can you hear me? Carry on. Okay. So changing the reality was on every politician's mind at that time. The second point, since it was a bipolar world, not multipolar, it was strategic for the West to transfer technology and generate goodwills around the developing countries. Promoting the idea of setting up CGIAR was palatable to all parties from both humanitarian and political economy point of view. So those are two rationale at that time. Um, so now fast forward 50 years, we live in a multipolar world and India is also a big part of that multipolar world. It doesn't live on ship to mouth anymore. Instead, India has become one of the largest food exporters. India is now uh, one, of the, one of the top few countries that allocate sizable amount of budget to agricultural research and development. This is very clear and Omar points that out. Other countries being Brazil and China. And then the main Ag Research Center in, in India, the ICAR, Indian Council of Agricultural Research, has an annual budget of about 1.1 billion US dollars, which is roughly 35% more than the entire budget of the CGIR system. More importantly, India is now among the top five largest funders to the CGIR, fifth largest in terms of both bilateral and window three funding during 2019 and 20. So one can make the same arguments about Brazil's Embrapa or Chinese Academy of Agricultural Science. So the question for the CG system is, have we tried enough to adjust to these new realities? I'm not sure if we have done enough. To the best of my knowledge, we do not yet have South-South and triangular partnership with any of these big emerging countries that are part of the multipolar world that we live in today. Omar alludes to this reality, but I thought this could have been uh, presented much, much more forcefully. Now, leaving the finance and geopolitics aside, there is also value proposition from the science and technology transfer point of view. Again, let me cite an example uh, from ICAR India. ICAR is not only big in terms of budget, it also has a strong pool of scientists. Uh, last number I got is they have about 15,000 agricultural scientists working for ICAR. 
So this is definitely a value proposition. As CGIR thinks about transitioning and transforming, taking advantage of these resources, these opportunities, I think should be at the front and center of the strategy. My second point is related to the fundraising funding challenges, which comes out very clearly in the chapter. Uh, it presents a lot of evidence on CGIR's funding challenges. As Uma rightly points out, funding started declining in the 90s, picked up after the global food crisis, and it started declining again from 2014 or so. So Uma makes a good point in explaining this trend. Investment in agriculture, R&D, is a slow magic. I think that is taken from Bill Purdy. And it takes five to 15 years to realize the returns to investment in agriculture, R&D. So when things go well in terms of stable food prices and global good global food stock, donors divert their attention. Is this surprising? I don't think so. In this age of instant gratification and rapidly declining attention span, the officials in the donor agencies are under pressure to show results. And the CG centers have responded to it by undertaking what Uma points out as downstream development work, which are, which are actually contradictory to the very fundamental mandates of the CGIR. And this point is very well articulated in this chapter. I think we should be all conscientious of these fundamental rationales for setting up CG system to begin with. Now, given this context, what is the right question to ask? Should CG leadership lament and blame donor agency leading for uh, cutting, cutting fund? Or should we develop a strategy to effectively communicate benefits of investment in ag research? All available studies, we have produced tons of studies now as uh, this Alex McCullough, Chris Barrett, Robo Pingali, Phil Purdy, all of them have worked on this topic. And available evidence is overwhelming. The cost benefit ratio of investment to CGIR is 10 to 1. That is 1,000%. But still, we are facing this swing of the seasonality of funding. The question is why that is the case. Uh, the point is that if we are in the business of global public good and we know that the returns to investment is high and then private sector is not going to invest there, that message has to go out very clearly to all community. And I may be mistaken, but that strategy is not very clear. It's not at the front and center of one CGIR or in the previous reform. So my last point I'd like to make is about looking better back at our own history. I mean, CGIR has taken credit for success in South Asia. Uh, I mean, it deserves credit because, I mean, it lifted millions and millions of hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and sheer food security from the sheep to mark to becoming surplus region and a prosperous region too. But the policies, and the technologies that CGIR promoted in the region now causing challenges. The farmers strike in India, the groundwater depletion in Punjab or the North Bengal upon Bengal side, all of them are serious challenges. These are part of the existential challenge that South Asia is going to face. 
the climate change challenges and sustainable agriculture challenges. Those are the things we need to put on the table and do the partnership with these centers of excellences so that we can contribute effectively moving forward. I thank you very much again. Thank you, Omar, for giving me the opportunity to be discussed. Thank you. Over thank to you. you. Thank you very much, um, Shahid. Um, and thanks to all the four discussants. You've put so many important issues on the table. It's, it's hard to know where to begin the, the discussion. Um, but I'm going to suggest that we first turn back to Uma. And, and Uma, you can pick and choose a little bit of the, the issues that have been brought to the forefront. But I would maybe uh, steer you in particular to the following three issues that have been raised. Um, how do you view the um, involvement of the Global South in the one CGIR transition? I think we should focus right now on the CGIR, given how much it's been raised by, by the discussion. Secondly, how do you feel the, the role of the emerging economies has made a difference in, in the CGIR transition? Um, and then lastly, uh, how do you feel that the private sector um, considerations are, are at play here as well? So those are three big questions, but maybe you can take a stab at those. So uh, I hope I remember all the three questions, uh, but a few res uh, responses. First of all, it's undisputable that the uh, Global South needs to play a very important role, especially uh, since the CGR was formed and compared to where the world is today, um, their role of emerging countries and developing countries in general has grown substantially. So the nature of the conversation needs to be quite different. I don't know, I haven't really looked at the one CGR reforms very much from, but from the noises I'm hearing, there is a sense that one CGR hasn't involved southern countries as much as they should uh, from the comments made by Mexico and India and other developing countries, the large ones and the smaller ones, of course, have much less capacity to uh, exercise their voice. So I think one of the important questions, in my view, uh, one CGIR needs to face is can, can, can it revisit the way it is going about achieving the one CGIR objectives and whether it can give more voice to developing countries in the South. As Shahid pointed out and David did, um, they have huge amount of resources now. And the question is how can they be tapped in the context of the reform of the CGIR? And I don't have a sense that they are doing enough of it. The second is their financial contribution. I remember I joined the CGIR when Ismail Seragaldin was chairman of the CGIR and was facing a big financial crisis for the CGIR. And he did an enormous amount of effort to get the CGIR to uh, developing country members to be members of the CGIR. In a way, they were not before. I think the number increased them to some 60, 65 countries. And that effort needed to be uh, increased by 
having them not just be members but contribute more financially and give them more voice on issues which are of substantial interest to them um, climate change is obviously one of them but as shahid pointed out water is another and there are others where developing countries have some specific issues africa has climate change issues a very big challenge for it so is the new research program of the CGIR designed to reflect the priorities of southern countries, but in a way that uh, that contributes global public goods to those priorities. And that I'm not yet sure whether that question has been directly ad addressed by one CGIR. What happens often in the reforms of the CGIR, which I reviewed since they were since the cg was created is that it ends up being an effort to reorganize the chairs on the deck if i may put it that way rather than rather than looking at whether the ship is sinking or whether it's sailing and what does it mean in terms of the way we should go about reorganizing the chairs and so probably the cgr can benefit from greater voice to developing countries in priority setting and much more formal representation of them in the governance of the cgir my sense is that the one cgir if anything reduce their voice in governance rather than increasing it fao gfar etc were seen to be kind of un type agencies that don't contribute as much to priority setting etc and that probably was a wrong message to convey because legitimacy of the cgir is as important as its efficiency so there are a number of things they can do but developing countries can also contribute more financially as i pointed out in my introductory remark rise of china is one of the major phenomenon in the world and in my view i don't think china is contributing as much to the CGIR. It has by and large ended up creating its own institutions of emerging countries, the infrastructure bank, the new development bank, etc. And I think China needs to be persuaded with its enormous amount of scientific talent that it has, uh, like Indians, to contribute much more to the CGIR and to get them to focus on issues which are of common interest to developing countries like climate change, like building resi resilience in uh, more sustainable food and agricultural research, etc. So there is a lot that the one CGIR can do now in the context of the recent debate on the voice of developing countries in two or three ways. Great, uh, th thank you, Uma. Um, you know, we've jumped right into the the CGIR discussions here, and I and I think it is important to 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 think about the the motivations behind the reform, which were in fact to be closer to our our demand partners and to to take our cue from the countries which which the CGIR uh, is is seeking to support. 
and 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 also the the um, the the other uh, thing to keep in mind, I think, is the the engagement with the emerging economy. So there there are many efforts underway. But since we've got Yo Swinnen with us, who's who's in the leadership of the, uh, the one CGIR, I'm going to turn over to him and and maybe see if he would like to comment on on some of the um, the points that have been raised. Over to you, Yo. I think this is a really important discussion. Of course, Uma's book is about much more than than, than our own organization. And, and I think the on the I mean the issue of the major global investment is a really important thing. I think the, the points with David raised also on the balance between um the balancing act he referred to it between the private sector, I think it's hugely important. But, you know, in a way, it goes back to first principles, right? It's like there is a role for the government in the world. There's a role for the private sector in the world and the right. And then the key thing is finding the right uh, that they have to do their job and they should not be expected to do each other's job, I think. And and, and exactly finding that uh, maybe the balancing act is, is, is a good word there. And public goods are there for the public sector to, to take care of. And and then some areas i mean the private sector is much more efficient of doing it much more capable and we should allow it to do it and set the rules such that the private sector is using its energy its dynamism its entrepreneurship to go into the right direction and i think the point there on nutrition is, is a very good example uh going back maybe specifically on, on the cgir here i think a couple of points right the, the research strategy for the next decade, which has been developed by the CGIR, which was approved a year, a year and a couple of months ago, I mean, essentially is very different from the CGIR as we as it was constructed 20, uh, 60 years ago. I mean, it has a very strong focus on systems, okay, not just food systems, but water, land uh, systems and food systems, of course. and. Uh, uh, the research uh, area, <clears throat> which I am leading right now, the systems transformation has very strong, I mean, it's called systems transformation, really about systems, not just food system, but also land and water systems. And so the focus there is very much from, from a systems perspective. The, the focus on climate change is, is almost throughout the whole system. We're going to have an impact platform uh, focused entirely on, on climate change, like we also have one on, on gender and nutrition, or will have one on gender and nutrition. And, uh, and so this is also true. I mean, it's the, if you read the strategy, it's, it's very strongly focused on them. And then on the other element, on the engagement of the Global South, I think it's a, it's a really important issue. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a structural issue. So it, I don't think it can be solved very quickly with quick and dirty measures that really requires a very sound strategy uh, rethinking and and very and, and a strategy going forward for the next five or ten years actually really of, of doing that and and we should do more i think on that area on the other hand in terms of the engagement for example with the new players uh, for example with, with india china the emerging countries etc there is a at the the, the global director for resource mobilization uh, in uh, well, it's not called global direct resource mobilization it's uh, innovative finance i think and, and budget but they have a special group working on connecting with the emerging markets to actually try to do exactly what, what we discussed here in terms of reaching out to them and basically work with them to transform from uh, as Shahid uh, described very well from the, the countries we invest in from the countries who help us invest 
And so the issue of South-South collaboration is a, is a major area there. And several of our, our IFP uh, directors are actually engaged in this thing. So let me let me end here. Thank you. <clears throat> may I just ask one question of you? Uh, I think it may be a public relations problem for the CGIR, but the the effort that you described about more engagement of the southern countries is somehow not coming through the messages in the CGIR. So I think it's and since Charlotte is managing this, I think the communication strategy of the CGIR needs to be much stronger in ex explaining what it is doing, what its intentions are. And my sense is that it's probably not heard enough of from Southern countries like Mexico, India, et cetera, in the recent noises that I've heard from them. I, I was just gonna and also in governance, if I may say, I think the CGIR's governance needs to be revisited to see what can be done to improve their representation on the new governance system. And somehow my sense is that that governance system has become more concentrated on the donor countries rather than on developing countries. I may be wrong. I would like to be wrong. But since Joe, you are very closely involved with it, I think these questions should be more explicitly addressed and developing countries should be told that they are being addressed and getting them much more engaged. Um, I'm mindful of the time and we maybe we want to touch on a few questions not related to the CG system, but yes. I, defer, I defer to you, Yo, on, on whether you'd like to respond uh, at this point or whether this perhaps merits a longer discussion and perhaps a future seminar or other, other uh, ideas. <laughs> No, I think uh, just briefly, okay, a couple of things. First of all, I think there is a, a very important need to review the, the structural issues there. Okay, I think there's no doubt about it. I also don't think anybody challenges that. And so they have been brought out in uh, a couple of, I mean, there's a lot going on in, in recent days, weeks on, on that. And I think we should take this very seriously, okay, and think very strongly about it. And so, and that's was my reference. I it may take a bit more than than quick and dirty responses to. I mean, quick and dirty is not the right word, but but quick responses to it. But and just the communication issue. We first have to look. Okay, where's the structural problems, and then communicate well on it. Okay. I also know that right now there's a communication being prepared in response to some of the comments that are are there. But I'm. Uh, not personally involved in that communication. On the on the science part, where I am uh, responsible for, there I can say we have reached out uh, very extensively with stakeholders in the global south. So we are in systems transformation. We have twelve of these new research initiatives. The the total is is thirty three. And so there, I think the the outreach to uh, stakeholders, partners, uh, potential partners both from the public side and from the private side has been very extensive over the past eight uh, eight to ten months when we have been preparing these things and so i think there the engagement has been very strong okay and but uh, as charlotte said it's, it's a big discussion so maybe we can we should continue it that uh, maybe at a full uh, session based on that thank you
Great. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm just going to ask one question of, of David focused on Rwanda. Um, and, and the question, David, is um, from an anonymous questioner about Rwandan agriculture. What, what is needed to modernize agricultural production and encourage more efficient labor usage? So you have about a minute to, to answer that question because we're almost at the end of our, our time here. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a huge question, but in, in the context of the current conversation we're having here, I think a lot of it goes into understanding what the effects of, of public investment is. Um, the government plays a very important role uh, in, the, in, the, in the presence of market failures to, to help raise productivity in agriculture um, through research, through extension, through the provision of inputs. Um, through subsidies for inputs and through lots of other um, uh, mechanisms or interventions. And uh, to increase productivity uh, and to um, uh, reduce poverty, rural poverty, to create jobs, to improve diets, uh, the government has to make very strategic investments, very strategic choices. And it has to be comfortable with the trade-offs in those choices. It could be maize that we're talking about. It could be hillsides we're talking about. Uh, it could be cassava, things like that. For those of us working in CGIR and other international organizations, we also have to be cognizant of those trade-offs in, in public spending. And that's really, I think, uh, what, it, what it comes down to. And, and in due course, the private sector will follow. The private sector will be part of that, uh, of that growth process. It already is you know, among traders and processors and, and, and farmers themselves. But, uh, but the public sector has a big role to play and the provision of public goods is really important. It's just a question of which public goods to invest in. And that's that's never an easy question. Thank you. Great, thank you, David. I, I just wanna take a second to point out that we've had a number of questions on themes that were raised by the discussants and, and they pertain really to how do we how do we get it right? The, the focus on food security and the focus on the environment and the focus on, um, on nutrition. Um, so, just to say that that is, those are some key questions that are coming from from our audience. So so those are obviously very big big topics uh, um, that have been raised by all of you, and the importance to to look at food systems in a very holistic uh, way. So I'm I'm afraid we've come to the end of our seminar. Um, let me thank Uma Lele so much for all her work and and this great presentations. Also many thanks to your co-authors um, Uma and and thank you for putting all these um, very big historical questions on on the table. And many thanks to our great uh, discussants. Uh, and of course, also to Yo for um, for joining us for this for this presentation. Um, we have a, a meeting coming up, another policy seminar on the 29th of March, um, which will look at retail food prices at the country level and implications for food security. Um, this will look at how the rising um, global ag commodity prices are actually transmitting at the national level and, and, and how what other factors are there in play to determine retail prices at the country level. This is part of an IFPRI series on the rising food and fertilizer prices. So many thanks to all of you. Thank you also to the, um, to the IFPRI event management team. And it's been a very rich discussion, which I'm sure will be continued. Thanks so much. <laughs>